This is Strange Jason of Six Foot Plus, and you're listening to the Faculty of Horror. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And like we promised last time, it continues to get hotter and hotter in the Rue Morgue Vault. It is quite steamy in here, and I think that has a little something to do with our friends, the Cenobites. We have such pods to cast you today. I was so excited to tackle this subject for the Faculty of Horror. I was so excited to watch these films. As you can imagine, listeners, we put a whole lot of research into these episodes. We put a whole lot of work into it, and we're happy to do it. We love horror. We love horror movies. We love nerding out about horror. But the past couple of episodes, when you're having a shitty day, and you get home from work, and you're like, man, I have to watch World War Z. My life sucks. I did not have that experience with Hellraiser. I was so excited to do this research. Yeah, these films are amazing. They're fun. I saw them, I'm sure like many of you, probably a little bit too young to fully appreciate everything that was going on within them. But I've come back to them time and again. I even went through a period last summer where I really got off on watching all the crazy sequels and just seeing how bigger and stranger and wilder they get. That was a lot of fun. And then this time, going back to the two original films, I had a really great time because I actually watched them with my roommate who had never seen them before, and he really, really enjoyed them. So it was a great way to get to share the experience, not only for myself, but to share it with someone who was brand new and to take in their experience of the films and how they responded and reacted to it. Needless to say, he thought they were a crazy good time. Oh, good. And so he should. I feel like these films are largely underestimated. I feel like some of the films that we look at are hidden gems. You know, we try to talk about movies that maybe got under the radar. But Hellraiser, I feel like, is a really underestimated film. Partly because the subsequent sequels, of which there are far too many, the really cliche pastiche of the sequel where, okay, now we're going to go into space or some shit like that. And I think as a result, it gets lumped in with a lot of the slasher fodder that has come out. But as we'll see in this episode, Hellraiser really stands in a league of its own. Yeah, I think for the kind of universe it creates, the themes it tackles, the way they tackle it, it feels like a very adult horror film, but it feels like a horror film proper. It's not like, as much as we love these films, like A Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist, which are amazing, fantastic horror films, but the creators always rejected the horror label. Clive Barker, the creator of the characters and the writer-director of the first film and the novella, he loves horror. He is a horror guy. So it's you know really incredible to have a movie, to have several movies that are based in this world, expanded upon this world, and proudly inhabit the world of horror. Yeah, Clive Barker is an incredibly talented individual. He's very immersed in horror, but he's very immersed in art in general. In addition to being a writer and director, he is a prolific visual artist. And we actually, at Rue Morgue, have one of his original pieces downstairs, and it's beautiful. It's humongous. You've seen it, right, Alex? Oh, yeah. It's one of the most striking pieces of art I've ever seen. Every time I walk into this office, it feels really special to be here. Yeah, so we're really excited to talk about him today. So to kick things off, we're going to talk about the first film in this series based on Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart, Hellraiser, which was released in 1987. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. (laughs) 
any terror you have imagined. A nightmare. No. Unlike anything you have witnessed. Is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. up in a remote eastern marketplace where Frank Cotton buys a puzzle box. And once he's got it alone, he solves it and hooked chains fly out of it and tear his flesh apart. And suddenly the room is full of swinging chains and bloody bits of Frank. And then a dark figure emerges, picks up the box and returns it to its original cube shape, which somehow puts the room back in order. Later, we meet Larry Cotton, who is visiting his childhood home following the death of his mother with his second wife, Julia. And they go through the house, and Julia finds evidence that Larry's thrill-seeking brother, Frank, had been squatting in the house. But he's gone, and so Larry and Julia decide to move in that very weekend. On moving day, we learn through flashbacks that Julia actually had an affair with Frank prior to her marriage to Larry, and she still pines for him. We also learn that Larry had a daughter from a previous marriage, and her name is Kirsty. Kirsty and her father are very close, but she hates Julia's guts and decides to move into her own apartment rather than live with them. Anyway, while they're moving, Larry cuts his hand on a nail and finds Julia in Frank's old room. His hand is bleeding profusely, and when his blood hits the floor, the floor kind of absorbs it. And as a result, Frank is able to partially regenerate himself into a gross, skinless creature. He reveals himself to Julia and he tells her that if she brings him more blood to feed on, he can regenerate completely and they can be together. Julia is horrified, appropriately so, but she agrees and she starts seducing men back to the house to feed them to Frank. Meanwhile, Larry has noticed that Julia is acting a little strangely and so he asks Kirsty to talk to her for him. Kirsty sees Julia bringing strange men home, but when she goes to confront Julia about these affairs, she encounters skinless Frank who attacks her until she picks up the puzzle box and taunts him with it. She manages to escape Frank with the puzzle box, but on the way home she faints with fright and wakes up in a hospital. And while in the hospital, she starts playing with the puzzle box and opens it, summoning a bunch of Cenobites who have come to take her to hell. To save herself, she tells them that Frank has escaped their clutches, but she knows where he is, and the lead Cenobite, Pinhead, agrees that if she gives them Frank, they might not tear her soul apart. So when Kirsty returns to the house to tell Larry what happened, he explains that he's already dispatched with Frank, and the steaming remains in the room are what's left of him. However, spoiler alert... It's really Frank wearing Larry's skin. Kirsty gets tipped off of the game when Frank says, come to daddy, and a struggle ensues. Frank accidentally kills Julia, but whatever, no big. He sucks her soul out of the back of her neck, nothing personal, and resumes chasing Kirsty. Kirsty lures him back into his room and makes him confess his scheme, at which point the Cenobites return and once again tear Frank apart with hooks and chains. 
So Kirsty thinks she's safe having cut a deal, but the Cenobites come after her anyway. She's able to fight them off with the puzzle box, destroying the house in the process. And at the end, she embraces her boyfriend Steve, who I actually haven't mentioned up to now because he really doesn't matter at all. But what's important is a vagrant walks up to them, a vagrant who's been stalking Kirsty, and he picks up the box before transforming into a winged creature and flying away. And the film ends as it started with a merchant selling the puzzle box at the market. What's your pleasure, sir? Now, in reviewing the film and coming up with a synopsis, I was actually amazed at how much story actually happens in this film. It never feels long. Nothing ever feels drawn out, but the storyline is actually quite complex. Yeah, both films are actually a tight, like, 90 minutes or just there under or just there over. But there's so much going on with it. There is an entire universe of hell that is created. There are the demon Cenobites. We have, I think for a first film, a really terrific understanding of who they are, what they want, and basically how they operate, as well as an entire family drama, including a regenerated, zombified, dead brother coming back from hell. It's incredibly impressive how well-paced this film is, how well-written it is, and how much Clive Barker can get across with his actors while still maintaining a really great and original visual style. That's right, and the novella is similarly fast-paced and really fun. It's a quick read, it's entertaining beginning to end. There's actually really interesting lyrical segues between chapters that really interested me. There's one in particular where Clive Barker discusses how the seasons kind of yearn for one another and how they change, and living in Canada and experiencing the two extremes within the 12 months, it really spoke to me and I thought it was really beautiful. But we should discuss maybe real quick, the movie does deviate from the book in a couple of ways, some of them more substantial than others, but all of which are pretty interesting. First of all, the most obvious is that Larry's name is actually Rory in the book. Not sure why that might have changed. Larry's a sexier name. It really isn't, and he's not a sexy dude either. But he's such a dad, which I think why at the end of the film when he says, come to daddy as Frank, it's so creepy. It makes my skin crawl. It's disgusting hearing it from anyone, actually. <laughs> That's that little twinge of incest. I think we're going to talk about that more a little bit later. But in addition to Rory's name being changed to Larry, in the book, Kirsty isn't actually Rory's daughter. I reread the book in preparation for the episode, and I actually found it a bit unclear what their relationship was. Are they just friends? That's how I take it, that they're just friends, and she's like a old friend of Rory's, in this case, in the book. And she's always just stuck around, hung around, really cares about him, doesn't much care for his new wife, but she's going to figure it out and get around it. I've thought a bit about why they made that change from having Kirsty being a friend of the family and someone of their age bracket to the daughter. What I've come up with is that Hellraiser, the film, as well as, you know, I'd say the novella, embodies some slasher tropes. And again, you're coming into the late 80s when this film came out. So slashers were in their heyday at this point. So I think there was, you know, a sense of Let's try to have that final girl. Let's have that young girl who overcomes the obstacles, who fights the monster and wins at the end of the day or wins as much as she can. That's not to say that Hellraiser is at all a slasher film. It has certain elements, but I would not consider it a slasher film. It's its own genre as far as I'm concerned because nothing else really compares to it. But I do think it plays into some of the marketability of the film and, you know, having a young, attractive actress, it never hurt anyone. Right. I think 
think I agree with that. And Kirstie is a very interesting figure, especially pitted against the final girls of her ilk. Kirstie really does whatever the fuck she wants. She's one of the most feisty teen heroines of that generation that I've ever seen. She cusses up a storm. She's quick to tell you to fuck right off if she wants to. I love that about her. Get the fuck off of me! Another deviation from the book is the book would make reference to the engineer. And the engineer was this entity that you got the feeling was behind the Cenobites. That Pinhead was the leader of the four Cenobites that often arrive at the calling of the puzzle box. But the engineer was somehow behind it all, hence the name. And I was a bit confused. I was wondering if the engineer was supposed to be manifested in the first film in that two-headed creature that keeps chasing Kirsty down the stairs. Because in the second film, which we're going to include in this discussion, because it kind of informs our analysis of the first, the figure of the Leviathan kind of encompasses what I would expect the engineer to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we talk about Hellraiser, I'm sure a lot of people who've seen the film and are fans of the film understand that there are a lot of wacky production issues that happened during the filming. I mean, Clive Barker had only ever made short films before, and he has a really famous anecdote where he talks about going to the library and trying to check out one of two books in the library about directing film, and they were both checked out, so he thought he was fucked. But of course he wasn't, because he made a really great film. And, of course, as they were shooting the film, they got new investors in, they got more money so they could do the whole Frank regenerating scene, which is an incredible feat. It's such a creepy, weird, amazing scene, and it's really unparalleled. But I think there were a lot of budgetary issues. It was made for a million pounds, I believe, and there was a lot of stuff that was done you know, very quickly, right after all the editing, all the animation. So I feel like some of that stuff, which was probably in Clive Barker's original script and idea, wasn't fully realized. And he subsequently distanced himself from the whole franchise, especially over the next few films. So I don't think it was ever the clearest vision that we could have had of the engineer. But I like to think it was probably more of the Leviathan figure that we see in the second film. I'm glad you brought up that regeneration scene because I was blown away by how well it still holds holds up. And I'm actually kind of astonished that Hellraiser isn't brought up more when we talk about uh, stop motion and reverse shot trickery, because it really is impressive and it holds up great. And I just think the detail that goes into Frank for the entire film, pretty much, or at least, you know, I'd say two thirds of the film, or each time you see him, he's a bit stronger. There's a bit more of him. It's so subtly done. It's so well done. It just looks great. And I think, you know, when people kind of say, why do people care about practical effects so much? It's because of shit like this. And they had no money, they had no time, but they pulled off such an incredible feat. The scenes are frightening and beautiful and everything in between. Another interesting difference between the novella and the film is I found the novella was very sympathetic to Frank and to Julia. There's a lot of internal monologue from both of their points of view about being unsatisfied, about being unhappy, about trying real hard and just not getting enough out of life and the desire, the overwhelming desperate desire that this engenders. And I thought it made them a lot more sympathetic as villains in the book than they appeared in the film. Yeah, I've always thought that, especially about Julia. She's a character who really, really interests me. Every time I watch it, I think it's such a great performance by the actress. She's really well suited to that role. But the moment I always pinpoint for Julia when we talk about the film is when they have that flashback, when it cuts to Frank coming in from the rain. And she seems like this happy, light character. She's like, oh, hello. You're very welcome. Yeah. Well, that's nice to know. 
And from that time when Frank fucks her and she has, I assume, like 18 orgasms and decides that he's all that she wants, for the rest of the film when we see her as this hardened, dark, scared character, it's like something about this man transformed her and she can never get back to who she originally was. That's right. She's a very tragic figure. I also thought it was interesting that in the book, Frank kind of knew the Cenobites would come. He was a little bit more informed about what this box was about. Of course, he still gets more that he bargained for. This is the original trope of the Faustian contract that appears in so much Gothic literature. But I thought it was tackled in a really interesting way in the novella where Frank really prepares the room for the arrival of the Cenobites. You know, he's got a big jug of piss in case the Cenobites are into that. He's got flower petals strewn around everywhere. Like, he's ready for an intensely erotic experience. And I think for me, I only read the novella originally a few years ago. And I've seen, obviously, Hellraiser several times before I ever read the book. And for me, what I never understood from the movie, it never bugged me too, too much. It never hindered my enjoyment of the film, was that I understood that he went to open the puzzle box because he wanted to experience something beyond pleasure or pain or the two things intertwined. But I never got how opening that puzzle box was pleasurable. I never understood how that was a good thing. It was like, oh, it was like a big joke. They were just going to fuck you always. So it, uh, reading the book, it was like I kind of understood the desire a bit more. I understood the lore that went along with the box, which I really enjoyed. Again, it doesn't hinder the enjoyment of the film for me, but having read the book, going back to the film, it added a lot more. There are a lot of holes in this plot. There's a lot of rules that you try to figure out that are kind of insinuated and broken. And even if you think you figured out the first film, then the second one comes along and all bets are off. The rules are redefined and that which you thought you knew makes no sense. So I think in order to meaningfully talk about the first one, we definitely have to discuss the second in tandem. Right. So I think when we talk about these films, when we made the decision to talk about both of these films... We have to talk about the plots together because they really do overlap. So now we're going to break down the plot of Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. Fear is reborn because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself for terror you have never imagined. Your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. And horrors you can never escape. And you wanted to know. Now you know. Last year, they brought hell to Earth. Now, they'll take you through hell. Time to play. 
In the opening scenes, we are introduced to Captain Elliot Spencer of the British Army, who opens a puzzle box. He is then ensnared by chains and has pins inserted into his head, creating Pinhead. The film picks up from where we left off with the first film, with Christy waking up in a psychiatric hospital. The police don't believe her story about a puzzle box, her uncle regenerating, her evil stepmother. Yeah, no shit. Christy is then left in the very capable hands of Dr. Chenard. Unbeknownst to Kirsty, Chenard has been following the lament configuration and has acquired the bloody bed from the first film, which he uses to bring back Julia in the same way Frank was brought back in the first film. While in the psychiatric hospital, Kirsty has a vision of her father in hell, and she wants to save him. Kyle, who is Chenard's colleague, sees the reanimated corpse of Julia and springs Kirsty from the hospital, now believing her story and thinking that she can actually help put a stop to everything. Meanwhile, Chenard uses Tiffany, a mute patient, to open the puzzle box, which opens the gateway to hell which he and Julia go exploring in. Kirsty also goes to hell following them to look for her father with Tiffany. Julia then reveals the god of the underworld, which is Leviathan, the god of the labyrinth or something, and sacrifices Chenard, which she thinks will make Leviathan appreciate her more, but really only serves to turn Chenard into a Chenardobite. Meanwhile, Kirsty finds her uncle Frank, who explains that it was him and not her father who's in hell. Julia finds them and tears out Frank's heart in revenge and then chases after Tiffany before having her skin ripped off in a wind tunnel, as one does in hell. Kirsty and Tiffany are trapped by the Cenobites, who Kirsty reminds they were once human. In this moment, the Cenobites are actually killed in a fight with the Chenardobite, but Kirsty and Tiffany are able to escape. As they reach their world again, they discover that Chenard is trying to merge their world with Hell. Tiffany then decides to go back to Hell to try to solve and thereby lock Hell and lock the puzzle box. As Chenard approaches, Julia all of a sudden reappears and kisses him while Tiffany closes the puzzle box and begins to shut down the portal to Hell. Julia is actually revealed to be Kirsty, who is wearing Julia's skin, and they make their way out of hell and back into their world, and seemingly everything is okay. However, in the coda that ends the film, we see that the box is still at play, the whole twisting, turning world, the bloody mattress, it's all still in play, setting itself up for the many, many, many sequels. So as I mentioned in the opening of this episode, the second film really complicates all of the rules we learned in the first episode. You kind of think of hell as an absolute, right? It's somewhere that bad people go. There's good and there's evil and there's heaven and there's hell. And when you get in there, you're not coming out. And so the first film kind of laid out these rules that if you open the puzzle box, you unlocked the portal to hell and you committed to being sent there. Your desire, your curiosity, your fucking horniness is what sends you there and there you will stay in perpetual torment. So the fact that Julia is even there, not having had any interaction with the puzzle box, the fact that Kirsty thinks her dad is there, who once again never did anything wrong, he was a saint as far as the first film was concerned, and furthermore, the idea that Kirsty could get him back as if like, oh, I'm just going to go get you, Dad. Just jump on my back without your skin and I'll just <laughs> take you out of here and back into the real world. It's all kind of preposterous, but the film never really dwells on that. It just rolls with it. 
Yeah, no, the film cannot make heads or tails of what it believes in, how it believes in it. I think the biggest red flag for me watching it the first time was how Julia was able to regenerate as herself and not wear someone else's skin. Obviously because it's a terrific actress and they wanted her back, but why didn't Julia have someone else's face? Yeah, it's interesting that she grew her skin back. Well, she's just that cool. Now, I actually have a bit of a head start on Alex in thinking about this film analytically because I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to contribute a chapter to a book. Now, the book was called The Undead and Theology, and it was edited by John Moorhead and Kim Paffenroth, who are excellent horror scholars, excellent scholars of theology, which is something that I don't know a whole lot about. If you listen to the podcast a lot, you've heard me talk about how I was raised Roman Catholic, and I even went to Catholic school, so it was really in my face. And so I was drawn to the project, but I was also like the undead in theology. Man, I don't know shit about theology. And a lot of contributors to the book wanted to talk about vampires, and they wanted to talk about zombies, obviously. There's an excellent chapter in there about Buffy. There's a lot of really good stuff in this book, but I was racking my brain trying to think about what I could write about. And I decided to write about Hellraiser, about how this movie informs a more modernized mythology of heaven and hell. My chapter is called Fire, Brimstone, and PVC, Clive Barker's Cenobites as Agents of Hell. So what I talked about was how historically the threat of hell came about as a means for the elite to secure their power. The state and the religious institutions worked together to make it such that, you know what, peasants, your life fucking sucks. It's short, it's violent, and it's full of pain. But if you're really good... Heaven is the afterlife, and it's the reward, and it's for eternity. So whatever goes on in the world, you can take it. As long as you're good, you're going to go someplace really cool after. So the threat of hell kept us in line. And it's actually a concept that was touched upon by a classic sociologist named Max Weber. Now, Max Weber's contribution to sociology is he wrote about the Protestant work ethic. And he discusses how the state and religion worked in tandem to give rise to capitalism, basically. The Protestant religion was all about, if I work really hard and I make a lot of money, it means I've been favored by God. So those two concepts merged together, gave rise to industry and business and essentially greed, which is kind of interesting because we don't really think of greed as a virtue, right? But again, they believed that the accumulation of assets and wealth meant that you were favored by God. So that's kind of an interesting example of how religion and the state moved together to create the world that we're living in now. Anyway, my thesis in this paper was that Hellraiser contemporizes classical conceptions of hell by making it personal. Individualization is another byproduct of modernization. Back in the day, we all thought we were going to the same hell. It was a place, and it was a place that sucked. And it's actually really interesting to look back and see that when we talk about heaven, we often discuss it as a metaphor, and it's abstract, and it's in the clouds, and there aren't a lot of concrete depictions of heaven. But there are lots of concrete depictions of hell in classical literature and art. But hell was some place that we all went to. We all went to the same hell. But Clive Barker's version of hell, everything was in individualized. Your personal torment would come back to haunt you. And that's something that we see in several contemporary movies. I'm sure you can think of examples. One that for some reason comes to the top of my head is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that movie? I love that movie. I love that kid. movie too. It was, movie. it was a stupid teen comedy, but it had a lot of dark elements in the sequel. No way! There was a Grim Reaper that they were constantly running from. I was obsessed by the Grim Reaper in that film as a kid. I think I was him for Halloween the year that it came out. I'll see if I can rustle up a photo. 
You might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper. <laughs> anyway, in Hellraiser, we have Frank's desire, which is a result of modernity and desensitization. He can't get his kicks because... All of his desires are kind of all around him. He's desensitized. And Pinhead is a really interesting incarnation of the devil because he doesn't need to go out and tempt like Satan. He just kind of sits back and waits to be called. And he is called because people are dissatisfied with modern life on Earth. I actually picked up on a little bit from the theorist Baudrillard, who we talked about way back in our Buffy podcast. And he believed that the curse of man was the need to always need, that sense that we were always desiring something more, something else, and there was always something better, and that we were doomed to repeat that constantly, constantly, constantly until we eventually up and died. And I think what's really interesting about Hellraiser is how it perpetuates the notion that even after death, we are still needing, we are still wanting, as we see in Hellraiser 2, Frank's hell is being tormented with these sexy, desirable women who he can never touch and who always disappear in front of him. It's actually a really funny thing in the original novella as he talks about when he is first caught by the Cenobites, instantly all of his senses are magnified. He can smell the paint in the walls. He can feel everything. He can hear everything. And... Instantly, he starts having flashbacks of every sexual encounter he ever had and starts touching himself and has an orgasm. And he thinks to himself, okay, Cenobites can go now. I got off. Thanks. That was great. But there's a lot more to it. I thought that was a really interesting twist. I understand why they didn't put it in the film because uh, ain't nobody needs to see that. But it's as if he thought that his immediate sexual gratification would be enough. And I think that really goes to speak to the time which this film came out. I mean, the first film was released in 1987. The second one released in 1988. So they were very, very close together. And, of course, I think as we mentioned a little bit before on this podcast, the 80s were a huge time of the consumerist capitalist culture. So just as you were speaking about how the notions of heaven and hell are built on this capitalistic idealism and keeping the lower classes in line, I feel like Barker was actually making quite a astute commentary on the rapturous need to consume and to buy and to purchase and to barter and to change. And I think it's slightly more buried in a film like Hellraiser, but we see it more clearly in a film like American Psycho. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer, then an anti-aging eye balm followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. That's right. And the 80s were also a time where homosexuality was emerging. It was becoming more out. It was definitely not mainstream, though. It was in the underground, but it was flourishing in the underground. But because it wasn't mainstream, it was kind of lumped in with kinky shit. If you were gay, you were almost necessarily also into BDSM and like anything that's deviant was kind of lumped together. And I feel like Hellraiser kind of speaks to that preoccupation insofar as there aren't a whole lot of overtly homosexual themes there are definitely themes of repression and oppression and for someone like Clive Barker who has had terribly traumatic ordeals with being out as a gay man in his industry horror is a very straight white male industry and Clive Barker also was involved in a famous lawsuit where a former lover of his they spent 13 years together and this guy turned around and tried to sue him for giving him HIV so 
Clive Barker is a figure who has had to defend his sexuality and defend his behavior time and again. And so I feel like this film is really his response to all of that. Yeah, and I think, you know, Clive Barker has said on a number of occasions what he likes about his horror movies and what he wants to try to get across and what he's interested by is allowing the monsters to speak. So in this case, I think especially in the first film, the real monster is Frank. Frank is he's the big bad. He's the one that fucks everything up. And then in the second film, we have a little bit more of the Cenobites and Chenard, and but it's allowing those monsters to have a voice. Maybe it's not the correct voice, but it's allowing them to speak about their experiences, which I actually really appreciate because he doesn't, you know, it's not like, oh, we're getting this big backstory to Jason Voorhees and we totally understand him now and Michael Myers and oh, how sad. But it is someone who is like a fucked up, weird, antagonistic guy has a voice and has a right to speak in this. And I thought that is really interesting. And it's still a very different rare thing that we see in genre films. That's right. And Julia as well is a very pivotal villain, but she's not as pivotal a villain as Clive Barker had wanted. In my research, it came up that Clive had really wanted Julia to be a central thread in the ongoing mythology of Hellraiser, that she was going to be the queen of hell. She was going to take it over and, you know, her evil was just going to trump everybody else. The God that sent me back. The God I serve in this world and yours. The God of flesh, hunger, and desire. My God. Leviathan, Lord of the Labyrinth. However, the actress, first of all, wasn't especially interested in pigeonholing herself as a scream queen, but furthermore, the fans just fucking loved Pinhead. How could you not love Pinhead? He was such a unique villain. He was so erudite and elegant, and he had a weird sex appeal about him, and Doug Bradley played him what? Sex? I just, oh, yeah. You don't think he's sexy? No. Like, I want to have a beer with him, but I I don't want to, like, fuck him. He doesn't have beer? No, you're going to sip a fine wine with (laughs) Pinhead. He's going to take it slow. (laughs) Actually, speaking of fine wine, I feel that there's a lot of similarities between Pinhead and Hannibal Lecter. We touched on how some of the rules and everything get warped, and it's a bit of a problem through the first and second film. But I feel like there is a correctness to how Pinhead deals out the pain and pleasure of the Cenobites. You know, when Kirstie makes the deal... Pinhead accepts it, even though he kind of goes back on it and has all these hell monsters chase her. But in the second film, when we see Tiffany open the box and all the Cenobites approach her and Chenard thinks he's free to run around hell, it is Pinhead who says, It is not hands that call us. It is desire. So we see that there's actually a real fairness to him. And I always felt like, especially in these first two films, and then even later on in like the crazy sequels I've watched, he's not the main villain. He's not the baddie. He is simply the judge, jury, and executioner. That's right. And to be absolutely fair, he does say to Kirsty that they might not tear her soul apart. Maybe. But if you cheat us, we'll tear your soul apart. 
Now, I got the pleasure of meeting Doug Bradley at my very first Festival of Fear. Doug Bradley was a guest, and I was there recording panels and station tags for feedback for the Room Org podcast. And so I sat in on his panel, and he was wonderful. Such an excellent guest. He had wonderful things to say. He was very gracious and sweet to his fans. I specifically remember him talking about how he was offered the role of Pinhead, but he was also offered the role of one of the movers who were moving that mattress when Larry cuts his hand. And he was kind of torn between, well, you know, Pinhead is definitely a bigger role, but I'm going to be covered in makeup and more or less unrecognizable, you know? And so, you know, he made his choice, and thank God he did. He was perfect for it. I really think that Pinhead's glory is a serendipitous mix of he looked right, he sounded right, and he was played to pitch perfection by Doug Bradley. But another thing Doug Bradley said on the heels of that was somebody asked him, how does it feel to be pigeonholed as this villain? Like, you're always going to be pinhead no matter what you do. And he had such a great answer. He just said, you know, as an actor, to be recognized for anything, to have a career, I'm 100% grateful. And we all just fell in love with him. But my favorite part of that panel had to be when I, I've, I've come to realize that this is something that happens in almost every panel with an iconic horror villain is they get them to say a line. So, of course, somebody asks him and he just dropped his voice and said, we have such sights to show you. We have such sights to show you. And I swear to God, the temperature in the room dropped a couple of degrees. We all had chills and we applauded. I loved it. I got a little chill when you said that. Cool. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine from just the discussion we've had so far, there is a lot of horror scholarship on these films, particularly the first one. Now, one of the oldest articles I could find about Hellraiser was by a fellow named Christopher Charette, and it's called Horror Film in the Neoconservative Culture. And he talks about a couple other films in this paper, such as Near Dark. Now, he tries to frame Hellraiser as actually being unsubversive in a way and how the pleasure and pain that is desired, that extremity, that need for it, is actually kind of a parallel to the AIDS crisis, which was emerging in popular culture at that time. So as Andrea was talking about how the gay culture was thriving underground, the mass culture was becoming really afraid of homosexuality because they thought that AIDS was a homosexual disease and that it was something that was tainted and no one understood it. No one bothered to understand it for the longest time. And it was a hugely problematic and scary thing to look back on that people actually thought that. So Charette actually kind of posits that the temptation of the Cenobites and the hedonism represents that parallel to AIDS so that by desiring so much more, by needing so much more, you're opening yourself up to disease. That's disgusting. Yeah. And that's the thing. So in the faculty of horror, as much as we talk about our ideas and how much we love horror, I also want to bring into the conversation the fact that these kind of papers are out there and that they are part of horror scholarship. And this whole paper actually goes on to really conflate Hellraiser with a conservative culture. It's a very strange paper to read. I do not agree with it, but I do want to open up that discussion to say that it is out there and it does exist because Hellraiser is such a big part of horror scholarship. He even goes on to conflate Hellraiser with the Eve Pandora myth and how it's female desire that opens up the puzzle box and lets the Cenobites in and goes on and on about it. And all I could think was, well, no, it was Frank. Frank did it. I mean, Kirsty opened up the box, but 
then she got Frank back at the end. Like, it wasn't her messing with everyone to just be like a sexy lady. Uh, so I think Charette is wrong in his assumption that Hellraiser actually reifies and deifies the whole kind of conservative culture. I think, if anything, Clive Barker's challenging our notions of what monsters are. And I don't know many people who don't like sex and don't like intimacy and don't constantly strive for new things in their love life, relationship, their sex life. And I think he's forcing us to ask the hard questions and showing us scary, dangerous things that can happen without our intention. Frank is a terrible, evil character in a lot of ways because he's emotionally abusive. He's manipulative. He's evil. He's a fucking zombie from hell. He has all of these things. But he's not entirely unrelatable. No, he's very human. He has very human desires. And again, as we mentioned in the novella, we see his perspective quite a bit more. And there's actually a number of taboos brought up in Hellraiser, not just having to do with blood, not just having to do with sexuality. There's touches of incest, just touches, mostly verbal, but Frank's desire for Kirsty definitely bridges on the grossly inappropriate there's hints of the dissolution of the family unit. There's some religious criticism. There's religious iconography here and there. I was reading an interesting article about how for a film that is so focused on hell, it really does reject the Christ-like symbols. You've got Larry and Julia moving into his mom's house and immediately ditching the old religious iconography that she had. They're moving on Sunday, which shouldn't you guys be in church instead of moving? Nah, who gives a shit? We'll move in on Sunday. And within the family, there's a lot of Oedipal themes. It could be argued that Kirsty's closeness with her father is a little bit suspect, her loathing of Julia, and indeed the entire trope of the wicked stepmother is an Oedipal thing. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's even to a point, it's pretty obvious in the first film, but then, like, fucking in the second film, Julia goes right out and says, They didn't tell you, did they, Kirsty? They changed the rules of the fairy tale. I'm no longer just the wicked stepmother. Now I'm the evil queen. So come on. No! Take your best shot, Snow White. I also think it's interesting that so much of the kind of horrifying nature of both films comes from the body regenerating and, you know, just seeing the muscles and the sinewiness and the viscera and just it's all growing in front of us and we also see a lot of sexuality who knows whether it's depraved or not who can say looked like missionary to me but <laughs> i think it actually is clive barker's finger to christianity because as far as i know in christianity the body is the site of a lot of horrors it's a lot of places where temptation can be aroused everything kind of goes wrong once we start exposing our body and playing with our desires so i thought that was a really interesting note to weave into the conversation of religion in this film as well. Also the fact that there really doesn't seem to ever be a mention of a heaven. No one's ever trying to get to a heaven. Everyone's just trying to stay out of hell. And I guess it goes without saying that a very iconic line out of this film was at the end when Frank is being held up by chains and Kirstie's about to escape him and he just looks at her, licks his lips and says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And that line was actually an improvisation, which is boggling when you think of how well it fits with all these themes that we're talking about. 
From the research I did, as far as I understand it, again, my parents are both lapsed Catholic, so I was not raised with this shit. But what I found on the internet told me that Jesus wept is the shortest passage in the Bible. And they say that Jesus wept because that is when Lazarus died. And of course, Lazarus is the guy who likes to fucking resurrect himself every so often. So it's a nice kind of parallel with, you know, who is weeping for Frank because he regenerated himself. What is that? His family's certainly not weeping because he's fucking killing them all or trying to. So to move away from some of the Christian mythology we've been talking about, I wanted to enter into the discussion a bit of Greek mythology. And that is something that is pervasive in horror films, particularly the use of the Orpheus myth. Now, Orpheus was, you know, a really charming musician, and haven't we all met them? But he was kind of known as, you know, being able to charm anything. Like there is a story about him charming rocks with his lute playing or something like that. But the character of Orpheus is actually forced to descend into the underworld at one point in Greek mythology to retrieve his wife who has been taken there by entities and beings who cannot hear his music. And I think that's a really interesting parallel to enter into the discussion of the first two Hellraisers in particular. Obviously, in the first film, you have the character Frank, who is seemingly charming or attractive or on some level a very desirable figure who charms so many people, especially Julia, and then is forced to enter into the underworld by creatures who do not hear him. Even in the novella, when we talk about he prepared this entire altar for them to kind of get what he wanted from them, they didn't listen, they didn't hear it, and he got a lot more than he bargained for, as Andrew was mentioning with that Faustian contract. And it is through his charms and Julia's love for him that he is able to regenerate to some state, maybe even almost get away with it in the end and escape it. Then in the second film, you have a character who is maybe less charming on the surface, but Kirsty also descends into the underworld to save a loved one. She attempts to save who she thinks is her father, but it turns out to be her uncle. But in essence, she returns, as does Tiffany, to go and retrieve something or make something right, only to have to escape again. I really like that idea of having to go somewhere unknown, somewhere unsafe, and retrieve something that you need, something that is important, something that will continue your life. And you don't know what you will face. You don't know what obstacles will come from it. And I think that's something, you know, it's a story as old as time, but we continue to see it. And I think Hellraiser offers really two interesting iterations of that story. Yeah, Kirsty's interactions with the Cenobites are really interesting. How at first they're just kind of like, oh, you didn't mean to summon us, did you? Well, too bad. You're in trouble. And she kind of talks her way out of it. But then when she returns, she's returning to try and rescue her father's soul. But the Cenobites kind of call her out on that. It's like, oh, we're seeing you again. That's kind of interesting. So you would think that if you got away from us, you would stay the fuck away. And they say, you know, no more teasing. No more delays, Kirsty. No more teasing. Time to play. Time to play. And it is almost as if she has some unrequited desire, which is why they're sort of interested in her. They're not at all interested in Tiffany, who has absolutely no desire. She has absolutely no curiosity. She really doesn't have much going on. Like, the wheels are turning, but the hamster's dead. She's just interested in puzzles, and she was kind of a pawn in all this, and the Cenobites are wise to that. Yeah, and I think Kirsty is tasked with this really kind of impossible hero complex. And I say it's impossible because 
she's not setting out to be the hero, really. She just, no one else has stepped up. No one else has the knowledge that she has gained. She's kind of back as in a corner and it's like, do I, you know, let hell consume the world around me? Do I let it take everything that I know and love or do I fight back against it? You know, it's a rock and a hard place. She's forced to venture down time and again. And even the character and the same actress, Ashley Lawrence, return in one of the later sequels as someone who's also kind of, she continues to make deals with these Cenobites, these figures who are fearsome. But there's a really lovely moment in the second film when she and Tiffany are running from Chinardobite and the human face of Pinhead turns to her and smiles a little bit and it's like oh we understand each other and I'm gonna let you run right now yeah I've got mixed feelings about the whole unmasking of the Cenobites that occurs in Hellraiser 2 on the one hand I think it's interesting I think it's interesting to problematize how these Cenobites look and then when we have their human permutation for example I feel like the female Cenobite who's played in the second film by the amazing Barbie Wilde, she's got that wound on her neck that is so vaginal. Yeah. And to have it right on display right there, I feel like almost kind of points to this, this fear of the vaginal, the fear of the monstrous feminine. We've got a Cenobite who, I've heard him referred to as Butterball. I don't know if that's a, an official name, but he's like the one who's so fat, he's literally busting out of his own skin. And I feel like that almost points to obesity as a problem of modernization is something they touched upon there. And Butterball, indeed, when his human form is revealed, he's an overweight dude. Then there's the chatterer. I'm not really sure what to make of him. His human form was a child. Yeah, when I watched it with my roommate, who, again, I gave no context to watching these films. That was part of my little experiment. He was quite affected. He was quite concerned that it was a little boy. I don't think he had anticipated that. It hadn't entered into his mind. Why would it? So that is a very jarring image in a film filled with jarring images. But you know what you sign up for when you watch Hellraiser 2. But to have that moment in the midst of it is really problematic to a certain degree, not not in the context of the larger film, but in our context of understanding the film. It's like, oh, was this child like really evil and sexual or did he just always talk all the time did he talk shit all the time what caused him to be a cenobite because there does seem to be some picking and choosing of who becomes a cenobite and how that's right we get a very clear idea that elliot spencer did not necessarily mean to enter hell he fucked with the puzzle box we don't really know what his deal was but we know that he was a soldier so perhaps he had some repressed desire perhaps he had some ptsd and was kind of looking for something otherworldly to help him deal with that but the fact that chenard becomes a cenobite almost immediately it's almost like they sense his evil and they take it but julia never becomes a cenobite oh she would have been the best cenobite she would have it's just been all like evening gowns and great hair so the mythology of who gets to be a Cenobite, who gets to have fun in hell, whereas who gets sent there inadvertently, is kind of a murky thing. But I think even that is an interesting question when we're talking about themes of sexuality in this film. Because the 80s is also a time when consent was kind of becoming a big deal. Date rape, I think, as a term, was only coined in the late 80s when explicit consent became a thing and you can consent to one sexual act and it doesn't mean that it extends to another or that extends to sexual acts 
all the time between the same two people who entered into this contract. So I feel like consent is approached really interestingly in these films in terms of who gets in, who wants to be in, who thrives when they're in, and who changes their mind. Absolutely. And I think consent is actually a really interesting and flexible term when it comes to the relationship of Frank and Julia. I mean, I cannot think of another more complicated quasi-love story in the horror genre than fucking Frank and Julia. These two are so dependent on each other. It's, you know, at least certainly an emotionally abusive relationship. It's such a manipulative relationship. And I think that we see that Frank in the first film, he comes back to life through Julia's desire. And the way that's fed is through the desire of other men for Julia. Julia's body becomes a kind of conduit for Frank to regenerate himself. She doesn't seem to have sex with any of the men she brings home. Like, they always kill and suck the souls out of them before that happens. But, uh, you know, I think we talked about actually earlier this week when we saw each other, I mentioned watching these films and being really struck by the way men talk to Julia, the way they interact with her, how forceful they are, how, you know, even her own husband, Larry, who seems like a sweet, normal guy, but when they kind of start fooling around, she goes, no, no, no. It's not like, oh, you're not into it. I'll stop and we'll go make a cup of tea and watch TV. It's like he's angry at her. He's angry and it's really upsetting to watch. I don't understand you. Hey, one minute... You're all over me, and the next... I just don't understand you. And in the second film, Julia loses all vestiges of victimhood whatsoever. And it kind of really makes the film interesting in terms of, was she always evil? Did she have this repressed desire that turned her? Or did Frank really turn her into the monster that she became, and her exposure to hell caused her to emerge as this evil being? Her motivations are always kind of suspect. She seems to want to get revenge on Frank, understandably. Maybe get some revenge on Kirsty, or at least kind of show her who's boss in a alpha female kind of way. But also to ingratiate herself to the Leviathan, which is a really interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, I always thought the antagonism between Kirsty and Julia was mainly... I don't know if it was that Julia didn't like Kirsty. I felt that it was an attention thing. I felt that no matter which cotton guy she fell in love with, they were always more obsessed with Kirsty. Frank for his weird kink for incest. And Larry because it's his fucking daughter. That's his, like, little lady. And he will always, you know, love her maybe a bit more than his new wife. But I felt like it was nicely hinted at. I'm glad they didn't go too deep in it. But there seemed to be, in the calmer moments of the first film, like a strange understanding between the two that they maybe just don't interact as much. And they'll just try to get along for the sake of Larry. But as the first two films go on, it's just all in out hate for each other. And I thought it was such a great moment that Kirsty had to don her skin. And, you know, donning someone else's skin is a huge part of these films. Frank dons Larry's skin at the end of the first film, and then Kirsty having to don her stepmother's skin to make out with a fucking Cenobite and save her friend Tiffany. I like that moment because it was complicated, but she knew she had to do it and she did it. Now, as the story goes, Clive Barker was a bit of a reluctant, uh, I don't want to say reluctant director, but he never set out to be a director until it came to Hellraiser. He had written fiction, which had been adapted to film, and he didn't like how that was going. So he's like, if you're going to do The Hellbound Heart, that's my baby, I'm going to helm it. And as Alex mentioned earlier, he 
readily admits that he had no idea what he was doing. So the fact that the film is so amazing and he has had a prolific career since, again, points to that wonderful serendipity that I always love to talk about. And he's gone on to make several horror films. Candyman is an amazing one. We mentioned that in a previous episode. But his other films didn't quite reach me quite as deeply as Hellraiser did. No, they didn't either. And and I think between Hellraiser and Candyman, uh, which Clive Barker wrote, I think he has a great ability to write for women. I think he understands the complexity, the trials that women face. And that's what I really respond to. I'm sure if you've listened to any number of these episodes, you'll find that Andrea and I really respond to complex interesting, complicated women. And I think that's what Clive Barker gives us, you know, with Candyman. And then in this film, we have two great female characters in Kirsty and Julia. Yes, one is good and one is evil, but not wholly so. There's a nice little gray area that I really enjoy watching them in. So when it came to Hellraiser 2, he had other projects he wanted to work on. He didn't really have time, and he wasn't especially interested. And so he wanted to hand the project off to very capable hands, but he stayed on as executive producer. And then he is known to you know, condemn the sequels that came out ever since, and rightfully so, as they got pretty stinky. But there has been talk about a remake of Hellraiser in recent years. And of course, you know how we feel about remakes. You know... We've already discussed the reasons that motivate a lot of these sequels and remakes and rehashings of classic horror. Dimension attempted a sequel in 2006 with Pascal Logier, uh, who I'm sure we're going to get to Martyrs one day. One day we will get to Martyrs, and that is Pascal's magnum opus, I would say. But uh, it fell through due to creative differences. You know, Logier wanted to make it very serious, whereas the producers wanted to make it a bit more amenable to teens. And so I'm actually really glad that that project fell through because that was a compromise that I really don't think would have worked well for Hellraiser. Oh, but I paid good money to see Logier's vision of Hellraiser. I Me think too. it would be very fucking cool. And then again in 2010, you've got Patrick Lussier and Todd Farmer who were supposed to helm a remake, and once again it was shelved. And then in 2013, Clive Barker himself said, you know what, fuck it, I will write the remake myself for Dimension, and Doug Bradley even agreed to return. And then Clive Barker fell really ill. He was really sick for a while. Those of you who were following him on Twitter know that it was... It was pretty scary. I don't actually remember the details of what happened, but it was a scary thing and his return to normality and being the public figure that is Clive Barker took quite some time. That's when Dimension came out with a terrible, terrible sequel called Hellraiser Revelations. And that was the first Hellraiser film without Doug Bradley as Pinhead. They cast another, I believe he's a British actor, I think his name is Stephen Colin Smith. And Oof, I only finally, in the midst of my Hellraiser sequel binge-watching last summer, watched that, and I could not believe what I saw. It is, the it, it's terrible. It's almost worth watching to see how wrong they get it. And Dimension made that film. They made it super, super quick. The whole thing was put together slapdash because they were about to lose the rights to Hellraiser. Oh, because he was sick. Well, yeah, just because they hadn't done anything with it in so long. Mm. So they were like, to maintain the property, they had to make something with it. And I think they've been wanting to do a reboot, a remake, or something really proper with it. Everything kept falling through. And then it was like, okay, well, if we don't make something in six months, we're going to lose everything outright. And they weren't prepared to do that. Hence, we get Hellraiser Revelations. 
And what was the sequel that had Lance Henriksen in it? Oh, that's Hellraiser Hell World, which is actually one of my favorites to watch because it's so fucking stupid. It is really stupid, but it's really interesting. I feel like there is a legit effort there to modernize it yet further. They kind of tried to put a, a meta layer of it, tried to get the internet age involved and how could the puzzle box and all this, but it was just not complicated enough. I mean, desire is a really kernel, rudimentary thing that I feel like is at the root of Hellraiser and why it's so powerful. Oh, it's, it's such a tactile thing. I think every single person on this world desires something every day, whether it's water and food or that $50 lipstick. It's, you know, it's there. It's tangible within all of us to certain degrees. I think where the Hellraiser sequels, almost all of them, especially as they kind of petered out, become very strange is that Dimension Films, once they attained the rights to it, I believe it was with a third Hellraiser film, what they did was they would take scripts that were in development that were about cults or dead people or things like that and shoehorn the Cenobites into them. So, you know, there's an entire rainbow of films out there about the Cenobites, but they don't really work because they aren't really Hellraiser films. I think what's really special about these two first films in particular is how we examine the family core, the family values, which fracture and disintegrate. And then the Cenobites come in and the whole idea of hell and the modernization of hell, as Andrea talked about, enter into this world and our views of it. It becomes problematic and complicated and far more interesting than, you know, what a lot of people have tried to do with the Cenobites in recent years. But that's not to say that the influence of Hellraiser hasn't gone in good directions. Alex and I are aware of a very good example of a Hellraiser-esque film that borrows this idea of bringing hell into the human realm and about how most people aren't into it, but sometimes there's somebody who kind of is. And for those of you that haven't guessed, that would be Paul W.S. Anderson's film Event Horizon. This morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon was the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space... There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening outer door. It came back abandoned. Any crew? Negative. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back alone. Captain Miller! I've got some problems here! This ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who knows where it's been and what it's brought back with it. This ship is reacting to us and the reactions are getting stronger. What are you telling me? That this ship is alive? Oh! I have such wonderful things to 
to show you. Oh my god. It knows my secrets. <laughs> Knows my fears. Vacate. I want off this ship. You can't leave. She won't let you. is one of those films that almost shouldn't work at all, but it totally works. And I mean, Paul W.S. Anderson, not to be confused with Paul Anderson, he, you know, made the Mortal Kombat films, and then he's gone on to do all the Resident Evil films and be married to Mila Jovovich. But Event Horizon is this creepy, mean, nasty film where it's, I feel like every time I go to watch that film, I always am like half expecting like Doug Bradley to pop up and be like, it is not the hand that calls us. It is Sam Neill. The first time I saw Event Horizon, I actually saw it with the sound off. I was bartending, and I was bartending a party that was called Event Horizon, and we had Event Horizon playing on a screen behind me. And it was kind of a slow night. It was one of those nights where more of our patrons were interested in other intoxicants than booze, so I wasn't making a whole lot of money, but I was catching glimpses of this film behind me, and the imagery alone, I was like, what the f- I need to watch this right away, and I was blown away. And I think for anyone who's seen that film, you know, I think Sam Neill's character, that doctor figure, is a really great evolution of the Frank character. Um, he's a bit more troubled, a bit more, you know, quote-unquote good to start with, but the places that character goes I think are fascinating. I've always been a really big fan of that film, and uh, maybe one day, maybe one day it'll get its own episode or part of an episode. Who knows? One podcast that gave Event Horizon its own episode is actually a podcast that is focused entirely on Hellraiser. I listened to it a bit when we were just kind of foraying out into podcasting and I was listening to different horror-themed podcasts to kind of learn the lay of the land, so to speak. And there was a podcast called the Hellraiser Podcast. It was a British show and, you know, after they had gone through all the sequels with an in-depth discussion, not unlike what we do here at the Faculty of Horror, sure enough, they tackled Event Horizon. So the ties are quite clear. Absolutely. And I would say the show is still going on. I think it's a bit more intermittent because they did, you know, I think a year's worth of shows almost covering all the Hellraiser movies, all their different iterations, Clive Barker's works, works like Event Horizon. So I think they're kind of coming back and doing little bits here and there when, you know, new developments happen. But if you are a really big fan of Hellraiser, you haven't listened to this, go search Hellraiser podcast on iTunes and you're in for a real treat. So before we wrap up the episode, I do have a couple of minor announcements. First of all, if you are a regular listener, you might have noticed that our theme intro music today is the same as it was last episode, and it will be the same in future episodes for who knows how long. We got some theme music courtesy of James Zirko Fisher. It was very kind to give us this clip from his album, The Nightmare Picture Theater, which is available on Amazon.com. So thank you very much, James, for that. I hope you guys like that tune as much as we do. We think it's a perfect intro for us. And I also wanted to mention that I started a subreddit. I feel like Reddit is a weird element of the internet. It's still so anonymous. You know, you've got your username, but there's no pictures or clear affiliations associated with your username. It's not like Facebook and it's not like Twitter in that way. But I am a heavy Redditor, especially in the 
horror forums and the podcast forums where I've gotten a lot of support, a lot of questions answered, and done some really great networking. So if you're on Reddit and you would like to engage in some kind of discussion that a forum like Reddit can only provide, you can find us at the subreddit r slash faculty of horror. And I'm going to be on there regularly. I'm going to get on there. I am always trying to drag people onto Reddit. I'm like the pinhead of Reddit, just trying to drag you to hell. And our last announcement for this episode is that it's July, and uh, I don't know about you, Alex, but I need to get some sun. You could project a movie on me. Like, why do you think I get tattoos? It's so that I can appear in photos. Yep. So we are going to take our annual sabbatical. Andrea and I are going to drink some cocktails on a patio. We're going to talk about new and great things to bring you in the fall. But that's not to say we have left you in the lurch. You still do have some homework uh, over the next few months. So we are going to be back, of course, in September. And we are going to be back with a really fun episode, I think. This was Andrea's suggestion. Hadn't thought of it. But I'm really excited to talk about it on this podcast. And that will be talking about Battle Royale. I think September is a perfect time for such a lovely back-to-school tale where we will visit some lovely Japanese school children who are in kind of an interesting version of hell, I think. Yeah, there are no J-horror ghosts, nothing like that, but it is violent and bloody and brutal, and I cannot wait to talk about it. So once again, thank you for listening. We will see you in September, and until then, office hours are closed. (laughs) 